I see such a chasm in what's coming in the finances of healthcare. I saw it 10 years ago, we ignored it, and then the pandemic happened, and now we've got this crisis. And it's not that I saw the crisis coming, but the disconnect between strategy, the CEO, and philanthropy is so dramatic. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Randall Hallett is a person who makes things happen. Over the last three decades, he has led major healthcare and independent school development programs, presided over a major healthcare fundraising consultancy, and most recently, founded the influential practice that bears his name, Hallett Philanthropy. Insatiably curious, he first earned his bachelor's and MBA and then continued to garner his JD and educational doctorate while advancing the success of its institutions, somehow finding time along the way to serve as a longtime broadcaster for UMKC Athletics and the Kansas City Chiefs. His recent book, Vibrant Vulnerability, takes on the challenges facing healthcare in America today and the unique role CEOs can and must play. We begin our conversation about a familiar figure from his childhood, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> oh, and you are wearing a sweater, but it's not a cardigan. Didn't he wear a cardigan? He did, actually. Well, actually, he went in with a sport coat, sat down, took off his shoes, took off a sport coat, put on the cardigan, put on his tennis shoes, and then reversed it as he left. Are you a Mr. Rogers fan? I, yes. I mean, I grew up with it. Absolutely. Uh, that. Sesame Street, uh, the electric company. Yeah, I mean, I was a PBS kid because there weren't many options. And, you know, the la- I tell people, I graduated in the last century and they go, oh, and I said, and not even in the last decade of the last century. When you say graduated in the last century, I hope they know which century we're talking about because not because of the assumptions about age, but People just have a short memory. They do. I think that that's one of the reasons I enjoy so much. Amateur is the key word. Amateur historian in what I read and what I watch and what I Google is all about history. And because I think sometimes we and my son, the older of the two, it would be the same for my daughter, but she's just a little younger. He's always fascinated by like, you go back and figure things out. I'm like, Jay, that's. There's a reason. Number one, it's interesting. Number two, the only way not to repeat the bad parts of history is to actually know them so you avoid them. You know, I'd love to talk with you about that because we have so many examples of that if we pay attention to history. But we do seem to keep making a lot of mistakes and many of them look to me like the same mistakes. Is that always because we're ignorant of the past or is it sometimes we just are willfully ignorant. So we've read the information, we've seen the stories, but we just do the same old thing anyway. I think it's a combination. I I tend to think there are a lot of people who view older people as, well, that wouldn't happen to me or I would handle it differently. And what I truly believe is that in individual cases, that may be true, but when the wave is so large, there's you can be the most independent self-reliant self-actualized person but if the wave is big enough it's still going to overwhelm you and I, I think that societally we we struggle with that um and i will see there's a lot of i, I and you ask me about it if you want I, 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 there's a lot of moving pieces in our society right now that <clears throat> i keep looking at people saying i hope you are and I don't mean politically, but conservative enough to keep options on the table if the unknown happens, i.e. financially, i.e. the markets, i.e. presidential elections, i.e. the options are important in the world. And when you have more options, you have better decisions. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people live, they don't understand history, they don't understand what's coming, they don't look ahead, and they're living moment to moment, which may be a good way to think about life day to day because life's short. But I'm always one who's like, okay, how do you make sure we have options in three months, six months, nine months in a a variety of different ways, whether it's my business or, you know, what my kids are doing or what we're doing financially or 
whatever it might be. You said conservative, but not politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are a lot of words that it's really definitions are important. We've talked about that before. So would you define what you mean by that? So people don't misunderstand that. I believe in the concept of the rainy day fund, and I don't mean it just financially. I think that sometimes we press so hard to do everything today that we lose sight of the long-term goals. Part of this in my limited knowledge and and vantage point is the idea of instant gratification is, is that we've grown into this instant gratification world, the internet, and certainly I think of social media pressing a lot of pressure on people to have that instant gratification that we lose sight of the long-term goals and that the, and I give my mom the most credit on this. The, one of the great lessons my mom passed along to me was it's great to have short-term goals, but the short-term goals have to lead to long-term goals. And you don't get to long-term goals instantaneously. They come in increments. And the best example of this, like it or lump it, is weight loss. You just don't lose 75 pounds in a day. But every expert will tell you, you have to have these little goals, whether it's a changing diet, exercising more, you know, how you operate kind of your day-to-day life that lead to these small increments to the larger goal. I, the reservoir of, you know, kind of this safety net in people's lives, not just financially, is one that I think sometimes we don't understand quite as much because we don't have the long-term goals because we don't have the extension span because we're driven to short-term instant gratification moments. And this isn't and, just to the the... The current generation. Uh, this is this is something that we heard. Uh, I'll I'll just uh, conflate our ages here. Um, when we were kids, when you talked about Mister Rogers and so forth, and television, the TV generation. Even if we only had a few channels, that was the accusation of the older generation of of our generations. Then was that it was all about instant gratification. I wonder if that's always the feeling. If that our parents' generation, their parents, they said. Things are moving too fast. You're not you're not saving for a rainy day. You don't have a long term vision of the future. You're not informed by the past. Is this are we just being grouchy or is this? No, I I think there's a little bit of grouchy. I mean, I I don't look at myself as get off my lawn guy, but I look at some of the decisions as an older dad. I mean, it took us a while to have kids that I'm older than everybody. I mean, all my kids, I mean, I could be the parent of some of my kids' parents or my friend, my kids' parent, friends' parents. I, I would argue that, that, that the world's moving faster. There's no question. And the, the, the analogy I would use for whatever it's worth is, if you had my two children here, they would tell you this. I am very clear about my role in relationship with my children. I am not their friend. I'm their dad. There's only two people in this world that can call me that. And it's a moniker that I carry with immense pride. But being a dad is not being their friend. My job is long term. And the reason I bring this up in this instant gratification world is the decisions that my wife and I reach. And there's no question that anything good that comes out of my kids is truly found in my wife and their mother. And my job is to fill in the holes. But philosophically, we're on the same page that we're interested in the long term. I got to have them ready to go in, go out into life when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, which means the decisions I reach today about how we view parenting. And it's our view. It doesn't make it better or worse. It's just our view is I don't care what they think of me as their friend. What I need to have them do is be ready, which means I'm not as concerned about how they feel about being happy. I'm, I want to create joy. I want them to find joy in what they do and who they are. I want them to have discipline. I want them to understand the consequences of bad actions. And sometimes that means dad's the heavy. And that's okay. That's, that's my role. And I, I, I embrace that. But that goes back to the idea that we're looking at it long term. And the instant gratification of the moment. Yes, we want to have smiles and laughter. And we do. But there are also moments, and I think of last night, where I looked at one of my children and said, you'd be best to go find what you should be doing rather than what you are doing. And you know exactly what I'm saying. And the look of not quite horror, but realization was in that child's eyes. Uh Uh-oh, I've crossed the line. Yes, you have. 
I, I think we've, I think this applies not only to parenting. I think what Nathan Chappelle and Brian Crimmins write about in terms of the generosity crisis is along the same lines that we've created these instant gratification moments in philanthropy where the, 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 the gifts are transactional. I need the money today. Our metrics support that. Our CFOs are needing this money now. I got to have this money now. And it, it's contrary to what the donor wants in terms of a long-term relationship that this gift or maybe an additional gift or a lifetime of gifts or an estate gift is the legacy they look to to make the biggest impact that they can in something they believe in. Uh, Jay, I believe firmly that that the instant gratification world has shortened our, our, our thought processes in terms of what's best, uh, clouded decisions. Uh, use another example from the financial world. What does every financial retirement expert tell you? Start your retirement early. The time value of money. I have a finance undergrad degree. I mean, and yet instant gratification would say, well, no, I want to spend the money today and I'll worry about retirement tomorrow. Uh, education. We can certainly have a, a robust argument that the cost of education is out of control. But if you start saving the minute your child's born, you have a better chance of supporting that child when and if they want to use a, a post-secondary educational opportunity to their advantage. We... The world is moving faster, but I believe that we as human beings have the ability to move as fast as the world does if we don't view everything moment to moment and we view things more longitudinally. And that philanthropy, finances, how you raise your kids, how you look at, uh, I'll give you another great example from the world of kind of pseudo philanthropy. And I'm sure others have experienced this. And I don't do this as much as I used to, but as a chief development officer, that's all I ever was. I never was a gift officer. I, the first day in philanthropy was a chief development officer. I mean, you talk about a dumb decision by one of my mentors, like, what are you thinking? But I used to have these conversations with these people that I are a little older than I am now. So this is 25 years ago. And they'd be talking about their kids and they'd be talking about their lake home or their ski home or something of that nature. And I would hear their kids who were about my age, 28, 29, 30, 30, you know, generally, generationally different than their parents, who were saying, well, I want what mom and dad have. I want that ski home. And I would turn to, and I give, this would come from my dad about perspective. I turn to the parents quietly in a moment and say, I heard your child say this. What do you think of it? And the parent would look at me and say, they don't understand that literally we had no nothing when we got married. We started with nothing. We've been blessed and graced in a lot of hard work to get to where we are because of a business or a career or an invention or whatever it might be. And they aren't, they, they want what we have now when we were their age, we had nothing. And that led into hard conversations about estate giving because the kids were like, hey, this is mine. And I, it led me to kind of understand as an estate attorney that the instant gratification of those kids was, I want this money now and it's my money. And I've learned to look at it and say, even with my own parents, it's not my money. They'll choose to do with it what they want. I'm the executor. I'm the oldest. I, I'm the closest ge geographically. But it's not my money. I, 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 I want to back up a little bit, though, because we jumped into a whole bunch of stuff and... <laughs> We didn't we didn't really give people an opportunity to learn where some of this came from for you. So I want to dial that outer outer space, Jay, outer space. <laughs> well, we won't start with the dawn of of, uh, you know, the earth. But um, if we could go back to just maybe where and you've already alluded to it, where some of these these values came from, because that's what we're really talking about. At least that's the way I'm hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, they must have come from home. Yep. And uh, and and I know you've talked with me about your father before. You just talked about your mother here. Um, and I know you also spent a long time uh, doing things in sports. And and I, and to, I suspect that some of that um, those lessons were learned in the form of play, because that's how, you know, we uh, we often adopt these things. It's not just that some a parent tells us something and then we say, OK, sure. But we have to experience it and kind of, uh, you know, go through it until we understand it. 
where did where did some of this start for you? Talk, talk about your family a little bit early on. And- well, I'm I'm blessed, Jay. I, I and I alluded to this. Uh, it was really the first, well, the second time after my dissertation, but no one read the dissertation. But in my book, in the in the prologue, I wrote about mom, my parents. I grew up in the the Johnsons lived behind us. Just to give you context, not that that means anything to anybody except the five Johnson kids. And if they ever listen to this and they used to call us the cleavers because, and for those who are too young to know what we're talking about, Jay knows it's, it's the cleavers from the 1950s. It's the ideal idyllic home environment where mom stays at home and dad goes to work and everybody seems happy. The only difference is that wasn't my idyllic childhood. That was my childhood. And most people don't ever experience that. I, I learned everything that I am as a person from mom and dad. There's just no way to look at it any other way, any other manner <clears throat> from hard work to the values that I have, to how I view family, to how I view uh, you know, more of the tactical things of, of like how I run my business. Cause dad had his business and our dinner conversations were a little different because of that to how I value what I do in terms of my spare time and that, that everything I am is fostered in my home with my wife and my kids and then fetters out now into my, my mom and my sisters. But I grew up with those values and uh, I have two unbelievable, unbelievably talented uh, younger sisters who are just the best. And we're a tight knit group. Uh, we're tight knit in part because three of, of four of my grandparents were only children. And so Christmas wasn't Christmas. It was a family reunion because we were all there. There were no other people. Sports laid into that because I was very lucky to be a good athlete. I and not a great athlete, just a good one. But I played high school sports and had a chance to play as a, as a, a collegiate athlete as well. And those were the lessons of hard work and teamwork and communication. And maybe most importantly, adversity when things didn't go well, how do you handle it? What do you do? And that's why we've not forced, but we advocate our kids playing in sports. I don't care if they ever make a basket or score a goal or hit a, a home run. And I coach all of their teams. What I want them to deal with is adversity. When it doesn't go well, what are you going to do? What was your first sport? I think like most kids, it was soccer and t-ball. Um, and dad always coached. And so eventually, I mean, tennis, golf at the country club, uh, t-ball, basketball. I mean, I played ever. I mean, you was, name the sport, I played out, played them all. And was he a, a, a sportsman too? He loved athletics. I, he probably wasn't as good an athlete. My mom uh, was, if I could go back in time and quietly just, view my mom in high school. Um, I think mom was a really good athlete. I, she was a tremendous swimmer, but in a day and age, and this is what I wrote my, my dissertation on for law school was on gender equity and college athletics, just in athletics, really mom didn't have those opportunities. I mean, in the 1950s and sixties, there may have been like a group of girls playing, you know, something, but there was nothing like we see today. I think I was blessed enough with the limited athletic talent that I had really more from mom than from dad. Although dad uh, was played a little bit of high school sports. Mom, I think would have been a really good athlete in today's world. And so she never got that opportunity, but sports provided those lessons that I think really supported what I was hearing at home. But it sounded like he was more of the coach. Dad least. was always the coach. Yep. He was either the head coach or the assistant coach for all of us, all, all three of us right. uh, in various ways and was very involved in everything we did while running a company and and I've taken my lessons of how I allocate <clears throat> my time. And I'm not a big believer in time management. I'm a believer in priority management. We all have the same amount of time. It's what we do with it. Dad didn't have a lot of extra extracurricular activities if it didn't involve his business or his family. His family always came first, but he worked hard. And I'm kind of now in that same vein. I mean, I coached, robotics clubs and, 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 you know, uh, dance recitals I'm at, and those are always the priority, but I pulled off of my golf. I pulled off, off of boards. I pulled off not as many friends, uh, you know, don't go out at night. Don't go play four hours of golf anymore. <clears throat> Cause if I have time, that's not business. 
I want to be there at home. I want to be a part of what they're doing because that's my legacy. This is what I do. And it sounds um, like that was what you also saw at home. That's That was the exact example I had with that. Uh, and mom, uh, uh, dad worked for mom, even though dad had his own company. What, what was kind of what kind of company was this? What kind of uh, he he was always a little bit of an entrepreneur, but he he started a wholesale hardware business uh, in the middle of the absolute, which is ironic. I never thought about it till this moment in the in the late 1970s, early 80s during you know high inflation and you know our economy really was the last time our economy as we record this here you know, at the end of 2023 was un- really truly unstable in terms of the environment. And we've lived 50 years with none of that to be bit, to be really candid. He started his company and did very, very well and finally sold it when I was in law school. Uh, and it was really a good quality businessman uh, where his handshake was better than a contract. And it's a good lesson for any young boy. Right. Um, yeah. And for those, again, history matters. And we're talking about in interest rates, which are Considered high now, they are certainly higher than they were a year or two ago, but back then they were more than double what they are now. Mom and dad's first house on Kennedy Drive when I was a little boy, and I've heard them talk about this for 50 years, was 13.5%. And my mother would tell you it almost bankrupted them. And so context is important. Do I do do any of us like the fact if you want to buy a house, I don't know what they are today, six and a half, seven percent. No, but I bought my first house at seven percent with my wife in 2000. I got to think about this now, 2002. And we got by my parents bought their first house. You probably had a similar experience. You didn't get it at two and a half percent in 19, you know, mom and dad in 1971 at 13 and a half. Context is important. We've been through tough times. The question is, what do tough people do during tough times? Right. And back to your point again, I guess uh, I didn't ask, but it sounds like if your parents were providing this kind of model about how to how to work, how to live, then they were also probably people who were thinking ahead or else it would have been pretty hard to afford an interest rate like that on your first house. So it, um, they were forward looking too. Uh, so, Jay, I would go yeah. that you make decisions based on what you have and what's available to you. We did not have when I was, I, my, I have a sister who's 11 years young. She's just an amazing woman, hmm. but we did not grow up in the same house. And she doesn't like when I say these things, but like she went to college, got out of college and went to Europe. I was barely allowed to go to Burger King down the street. Dad's business did better. It, it didn't mean her life was better than mine or mine better than hers. We just, but you made choices. We didn't go on fancy vacations. Uh, I remember as a kid, as dad was starting to get into all of this, a great vacation. We'd go when I was really young to Kansas City. Here I am in Omaha, so 180 miles an hour to the Holiday Inn at, at Shawnee Mission. Uh, and what would it be? Uh, Antioch for to the Holodome for a weekend. That was a I mean, that was a treat just because we didn't go skiing or go overseas or do a cruise or whatever the great places. Those are my fondest memories. I mean, that is the hallmark of who I am. And I think that goes back to instant gratification. Mom and dad knew their limits. Yes. Could they extend beyond them? I guess with credit cards and other things they could have, I wasn't old enough to know, but they said, no, we're going to do this as a family. We have a long-term plan, getting you kids through college, paying off a house, building a business, being together was more important. I am and then, almost imagine you all in a country squire driving. It's not far off. Uh, <laughs> we we actually had uh, we had the old uh, uh, Clark Griswold paneled station wagon. And yeah. quick another movie reference. Some and that one's maybe a little bit better than a couple of others. But yes, we had we were the cleavers, and I would also tell you my parents the lessons I have for my kids as much as it was really utopia as a child. It was also, we are not your friends. Our job is to prepare you. And we're going to have expectations and our expectations are going to be higher than yours because we know what you're able to do. And we love you because of that. I I find those words uh, very much a part of what I tell my kids. And 
maybe that makes me old school, get off the lawn guy, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, there's there's no big paddle hanging on your wall. So I think we know this is more about kind of a mental and emotional discipline than anything else. Uh, <laughs> but so you, you, this sounds like a pretty, um, almost uh, a black and white TV life in all the best yep. senses. Um, and then uh, there you were off to school because you clearly, you know, made it past the Burger King into college and not just once. You have a series of degrees that I know you took over time, but it's quite an educational legacy. But in the middle of all that, you're also playing sports. So you just alluded to it quickly. It's high school sports. It's not just one. And, co and collegiate sports. And I don't know if you were playing multiple sports then. Too. No, 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 no. I was, I was way over my skis in college. I mean, it was college golf and I enjoyed it and I okay. did it for a couple of years and I wasn't good enough. To, you get to that level. Dad always talked about, and I think life is this way. It's about a triangle right? and that everybody plays at the bottom. And as you move up, fewer and fewer people can compete at the level that, that you can still play. But to be competitive, it gets to be a smaller and smaller group of people. I really realized that in late high school and early college. And I think about some of the kids um, that I played against who went on to do really incredible things in golf college. I mean, high level college golf, even one or two of them into the mini tours. They didn't make it to the pros, but boy, were they good. And I wasn't that person. And I had too many other interests intellectually that I, I, I was the classic nerd. I was interested actually in learning. Um, and as a result, sometimes if a choice was to be made, do I want to go practice more or do I want to, because I don't, didn't drink, I, you know, didn't have a lot of girlfriends. I was academically driven. I'd sometimes would go read a book rather than go practice. Well, the consequences, you don't compete at the same level as those who chose to go practice. And that but was my choice. This, this big dream also about the NCAA. So yeah, that, that still there in you. Sports is always in me. I mean, I'm still a, a tried and true. If you look behind me here on the screen, you can see the Nebraska football stadium we made Thanksgiving one year and then the helmet and my son. I think if I go right here, there's right. a little Herbie Husker my son made for me for Christmas a year or two ago. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I love sports. I love what they do to teach. I wanted to be president of the NCAA. That was my career goal. That's why I chose to go to law school instead of becoming a teaching professional in golf or going and, and coaching basketball in high school. And was headed in that direction in my first job and realized this is the craziest industry I've ever seen. The black, you talked about the black and white. I'll pull that along. The world of college athletics no longer was the utopian black and white. Cause what's the movie uh, Pleasantville where you, they go back into time and they, and all of a sudden as emotion becomes cut, they become colored and they realize the idyllic times weren't quite as idyllic. That was what I realized with college athletics like whoa this is not heading in a good direction this is 25 years ago i never would have predicted where really we're what, what what was it that you were seeing that uh obvious, to be right? candid without using names right unethical behavior um that the that it was more important and i mean i hate losing more than anybody i know i mean i'm sure michael jordan may be at the top of that list but i don't let my kids beat me and by the way, if I need to, I might cheat just a little bit to make sure I win at home. Okay, I don't like to lose. Yeah, <laughs> I do not like to lose. But mm -hmm. I think there are bigger things in life than winning and losing. Mm -hmm. And what I realized in college athletics is, is that the money and the need to win overrided much of the dis best decisions about what's short back to instant gratification. What do I need to do today to get what I need versus what's in the best interest of the kids, the program, the, 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 the university long term? And so I was an assistant athletic director at age 25 out of law school. And I spent a year and a half and realized, oh, my Lord, I had met my wife who is you know seven years younger. So she's 18. I'm 20, you know, 26, 27 years old. You know, by the way, I don't advise that in telling your parents because you might lose an in-law or a parent real quickly from, you know, some type of uh, heart attack because they're like, you're dating. What? 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 It worked out 25 years later. But I she looked at me one day and 20 years old, we were just engaged. And she looked at me and that's how I part of the reason you, you get verification of the 
the the concept that the decisions you make, you realize you get older, the decisions you make early in your life really do affect the ones you, the things you have later. And that decision of mine to talk her into marrying me uh, and uh, maybe tricking her would be a better word uh, is the best decision I've ever made. But she looked at me and told me, if this is how you view our life, you are miserable. This is not the way we're going to live. And you have to make a choice. And it was a very much a, a wonderful moment looking back where she was more interested in me and us than she was in herself. And that I left out of college athletics and dad, before he passed, always would comment. He says, with your fundraising thought process, strategic thinking, you know, the fact that I have more education than most people need in the, in five lifetimes and that I understand universities and I understand teaching you, I'd have been in the middle of this absolute chaos of college athletics and I still would have been miserable. And the contrary is I get, I'm joyful every day by what I do, even though it wasn't where I wanted to go 25 years ago. And so that, that kind of takes us into this world of switching from, uh, of course, collegiate athletics to, uh, to fundraising. So how did that, how did you first find that role? Tom Pesci. Uh, a Jesuit priest, my first mentor. Uh, I was getting married, literally like the wedding. And my best man and dear, dear friend, uh, his dad was on the board at the Jesuit high school in Kansas City. And he he too was a fundraiser and then went into commercial real estate. Uh, and he, they were looking for the head of philanthropy. And uh, my best friend's dad, who's on the board, looked at the the Jesuit priest and said, I got a guy for you if you're willing to think outside the box because this guy's got it. And I think that's almost the exact quote from Ray. And so we got married, came home from the honeymoon. I am literally unpacking boxes into this apartment with the gra- my My wife just graduated college three weeks before or a month before. I mean, we're literally seven, eight years apart. She's 22. I'm 29. And I'm unpacking boxes and my cell phone, a flip phone. For those of you who don't know what that is, go back and look. And it's this guy I'd never heard of. He goes, my name is Father Tom Pesci. It's middle of summer. I, I work. I, I'm the president at Rockhurst High School. Your name's come up. We're looking for a head of philanthropy, a develop, director of development. Could Would you be interested in talking? And I said, Father, I, I'm honored. But I literally, when packing boxes, I couldn't find a dress shirt. If you paid me, I, I I need a week to find. And he said, why don't you come over this afternoon? Just wear whatever you're wearing. It's summer. There's nobody here. I said, father, I don't have a pair of pants. <laughs> True story. And he says, I don't. He says, don't worry about it. It's, there's nobody here. And I'm like, okay. So I think I was able to scrounge up a pair of pants and like a, a button down shirt. And Marilyn says, my wife says of a month, where are you going? I said, I think I'm going for an interview, but I'm not quite sure. And I went over and we chatted and I was like, you know what? This is the move. And he, he is my, one of my two major mentors. And he okay, taught- what was, what was the attraction? What did he say? Do you remember what he said that made you think, yeah, not only can I do this, but I want to do this, that it would bring the joy back. I think that it, Jay, I think it was more that I needed to get out of the university and not so much go to there. Although if I go back and look at in time, the rationale of why the job was great, not wasn't because I left. It was because of what I walked into, but I wasn't smart enough at age 28 or 29 to know that. And so I, I, to be candid, I just don't think it was because I was that smart. I think it was because I, I don't want to say running, but I was like, I need to make a change or the university world's going to eat me and I need to get out the other thing is, is that when I found out that uh, Gus's dad, my my best man's dad had made the recommendation, that's a family I trusted, that there was a value set because I trusted them to say this must be okay. At least a, a checkbox. Like, okay. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I don't know why in the world he hired me. I have no idea. Uh, so when you talked about these decisions that we make. Sometimes it sounds like sometimes, at least in your case, you made a decision. Uh, may have been, you know, just according to an opportunity, it was endorsed by people you trusted. It wasn't necessarily part of a a 20-year plan. 
No, professionally, it's the only time I can think of where I was running from something than rather running, cho- choosing to run to something. The only time. Uh, and it, I, if I was candid, I think there's a lot of truth in that, that it just was better that I, I got to make a change. And it had the full endorsement of my wife, who I don't think understood it either, but was like, I know what you're doing isn't working. Let's try this. And if the this doesn't work, then we can see what's next. And it turned out that it was a remarkable opportunity. And I'm blessed to have been given it. And you talked about him serving as a mentor. In, in what ways? What, what Tom, kind of mentor was he? Tom Pesci, who still is alive and kicking and doing great in Kansas City, Missouri, taught me the, the basics of philanthropy, taught me the ability to build relationships. Tom Pesci is an amazing fundraiser. And I say this at the beginning of my book, he is an amazing fundraiser. You put the collar on him. He's deadly. In terms of fundraising. In, in the, in, in the religious, and if we steal from the seven faces of philanthropy, the devout, when the, when the, the, the head of the, the, the religious aspect shows up, it has power. But he never used that as a part of philanthropy. It certainly embodied who he was, what he believed, the things he had learned. But that was he built his ability to raise money at Rockhurst and then he was at Blakefield and then he was back in Scranton and then now running the the uh, Jesuit house in Kansas City. He never used his collar as the crux of why people should give. He used his ability to build relationships as the reason people would consider to give and then help them understand the, what that gift could do in terms of something that I, I still believe in in Jesuit education. He taught me the basics of how to build relationships and the depths of them. He introduced me to concepts of metrics and he introduced me to the thought process of the seven faces of philanthropy and that people have personas of why they choose to give and you need to figure out and morph a little bit into what they need to make this possible for them and for you. He also embodied me with the most important lesson in my philanthropic career and give him full credit. He always used to say, and still does now that the true nature of the gift is only known in the heart of the donor. And this goes back to this idea of transformational giving. Transformational giving is not a dollar figure. It's an emotion. The best gift I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of nine figure gifts, is not that those gifts. It was a $20 gift from a a woman, a mother at Rockhurst, who saved $5 out of her grocery money every month because we were giving that child a full scholarship because they couldn't afford anything. And this would be the first child to go to college. It would change the entire family. And the mother writes the note saying, this is the most important moment in my family. And I want to be a part of your giving process because I'm grateful. And I save $5 per month out of our grocery money. That's the best gift I've ever been a part of. That's transformational. And Tom Pesci taught me that it's not about the dollar figures as it is the joy someone has in wanting to make a difference. It was um, was philanthropy something you were already aware of, had language for, were committed to? I would tell you the joy of it was, I mean, I oversaw parts of philanthropy in the athletic department, but didn't. That was all transactional for tickets and better seating and, you know, advertising. So I don't, I'm not sure that's total philanthropy. Philanthropy was always a part of something that I grew up with. Um, Jay, I, I, we never knew the word philanthropy. You just helped others. That's just kind of the way my parents were. But philanthropy, really, the joy of it it happened in law school. Uh, And those of us who were old enough, uh, gray hair, giving me away, we didn't have, for those who watch this and think about the future, we didn't have uh, degrees in philanthropy when we started. I mean, we all got into this in these odd ways. For me, it was in law school. I, my mom had cancer. I missed a couple of weeks, the la- my second year, second semester, right before finals. And if you've been to law school, usually there's only one or two tests. There's not a lot of quizzes. And so you miss a chunk of time before finals. That's a problem. And the law school did an awful lot to make sure that I could get through finals. And I had to pass, but they made sure that I had in a day and age where there wasn't internet. You couldn't watch things online. There were no 
you know, Zoom. And I, I'm not going to comment on my grades that semester, but I passed. But what was interesting is I always felt a debt of gratitude. So I went in my third year, last year of law school, and went to all my classmates, 148 of us, I think that, well, I know exactly how many people graduated because I made it possible for all of them not to finish last in the class. 148 of us, I went to every one of them and said, we're going to do and restart a tradition of a class gift, which is something you might see from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I was able to raise some money for law school, uh, for the law school over a pledge period of payments. And that's when I figured it out. But the true moment was it race judicata, which is a black tie dinner before graduation, at least at UMKC. I got up and said, we're $10,000 short of our goal. I don't drink, don't smoke, didn't do it, but drove a lot of my friends home. Or <laughs> uh, some of them into bed. Uh, some of them were groomsmen and pe uh, people that I still consider my closest friends today. And I got up and said, all down of guzzle, a, I think was the word I used, a, 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 a 16 ounce beer right here on the dais, if we can raise the last $10,000. The dean pulled out his pen and signed a $5,000 pledge on the spot because he's like, I got to see this. We had it in about four minutes. My classmates were, we'll pay, we'll pay. Here's cash. Here's what I got. I had, you know, because your parents and I like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a hundred dollars for that. I mean, I got to see this. And that was the first beer I'd ever had in my life was standing on that dais, guzzling it in front of my, and I thought, my God, this is a pretty cool thing is if, you can find joy because the smiles on their faces as they were giving money to me to the school. I was like, they're having a ball. Now I'm not going to drink a lot more beer for this. because <laughs> It tastes terrible, but there it was, it was what Andrew Carnegie talks about in his book that he began to realize that the legacy isn't. And Winston Churchill's got the best quote of all you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. And it was in that moment. I was like, I didn't quite understand it all. It's like this concept, this could work. This is cool. And that kind of morphed in because of father Tom Pesci and other things that actually professionalized kind of what I do. And you didn't even have to mention the brand of beer, which is, uh... I couldn't Jay, I couldn't tell you if it was a good beer or bad beer or a brand <laughs> They could have given me something terrible and I, I would have no idea. And you survived uh, the night apparently. So it was a success for the school and, and for you. So that's, yeah, you got it. Beer is an acquired taste. And <laughs> I, I, obviously I did not acquire it. <laughs> okay. So here you are and you're already now into law school. And, and uh, one thing that we haven't talked about is that you were still on the sports front. Now you were doing a tremendous amount of broadcasting. So was... had that already started. Yes. So I started broadcasting. Uh, there was this thing that was kind of new called the internet. So just for context, when I walked into law school in August of 1994, first day of class, there are, and at least the way they did it at UMKC, you're kind of potted. There was an A pod, a B pod, and a C pod, about 60 kids per pod. And you did all your classes the first year together. So we're in this huge lecture hall. We were section B. I'm the only one with a laptop. The only one. It was the that, first that time because laptops didn't exist in 1994. Right. My parents asked me after I graduated, what is it that would help you most with law school? And I said, there's this new concept called a laptop. Because you had a desktops kind of dot matrix printing and, you know, but I said it would allow me to do my note taking in class and then reorganize my thought. And mom and dad, I don't even know if they had the money, but it was an Apple 180C. Is that scary? I can still tell you what that is with an external drive that plugged in so I could uh, back it up on a disc. That's you kids. That's something you actually needed to save stuff. and. I was the only one. So all of this kind of led to the idea of the internet in a context and the university was looking for someone to broadcast on the internet 
women's and men's women's volleyball and basketball. And I said, I got a big mouth and full of hot air. I'll do it. And the athletic director, Lee Hunt, looked at me and he says, it's women's sports. No one's going to listen and no one cares. Sure. And well, I appreciate the offer. I'm not sure the response was all that great. And so I, that's how I started as a, as a first year law school student, going to law school, getting an MBA, having a job, didn't have my fellowship yet or my, my internships. And I broadcasted all of their games and got to the point where I started traveling with the teams. And that led to doing things on television in a time when cables blowing up and mm-hmm. we have ESPN plus today, they had ESPN plus then, but it wasn't, it was just over the internet. It wasn't like a, like subscription. It was like, if you could get on the internet, you might be able to see it. Well, I got to broadcast an Allen field house in Hearns arena at the university of Missouri, Allen field house, university of Kansas at old Brambledge at Kansas state up at Iowa. And uh, what is the name of that arena? And it names Iowa. I'll think of it in a second. I mean, I was, I got to broadcast in the old the Vanny center in Lincoln. And all of a sudden then there was an opening for the Kansas city chiefs to do the PA announcing. And they were like, we've listened to you. You, you got a pretty good voice and seem to know what you're talking about. So I did that for several years. So, I mean, I had these unique experiences that, you know, probably are more part of history than validity today, but I certainly enjoyed it. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And it wasn't until I moved to Minnesota when I had to stop that I kind of pulled back from all of it just to do what I I do today. Oh, just because the requirements of work and and family, because I know those that's your focus. The Chiefs, I pulled back first. The Chiefs were a lot of fun. Yeah. And they were winning. Uh, not Super Bowls. We didn't have Patrick Mahomes. We had Elvis Gerback, and that's a totally different situation. <clears throat> but it would be an all-day Sunday. I was recently married, and frankly, I made a choice to say I want to spend more time with my wife. And so I that was the first thing that I quit. I was still in Kansas City and handed it off to somebody else who would do a better job. So you were... <laughs> Yeah, I know I keep bouncing around, uh, but you were you finished law school and your MBA, but mm-hmm. you were already steeped in this whole world of philanthropy. So what was the next big role? Because this is where you, I guess you started your work in what you've spent so many years on now, which is, of course, healthcare philanthropy. So the big there was an intermediate move that was big uh, from Kansas City to to St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, the reason it was big was Father Pesci uh, had left uh, to become taken. He got a sabbatical and he went on to Blakefield in Baltimore. And we had a great president. Terry Baum was terrific. But I got a call from this little place in St. Paul, Minnesota, who said, you've spoken at a couple of conferences and a couple of people are seeing it. Your name keeps coming up. And the real move was not because it was a private Catholic military, all male school, not quite Jesuit, but in the same vein at St. Thomas Academy, but there would be no protection. There, the headmaster was very clear about, I don't know anything about philanthropy. It's just not my thing. I'm a great, I'm a pretty good communicator. I'm a strategic thinker. I need you to run all of it. Marketing admissions. I just, you got to do everything. And the move to go to, to St. Thomas for five years was more about, a belief in myself that when you don't have, it's kind of like when you leave home for the first time, you don't have those parents to kind of protect you. Tom Pesci protected me. I mean, I made so many mistakes. I can't even count them all, but I knew it kind of in your back of your mind, you have kind of this angel on your shoulder to make sure everything will be okay. Going there was not going to have an angel. And the question is, could I handle it? And so that was the move for five years. And then I can tell you on Martin Luther King, we didn't have school. I was at home. And I got a call from an old friend who said, uh, you know, there's an opening. They're having trouble filling it back here in Omaha as the head of philanthropy at the academic medical center at the Nebraska Medical Center is the hospital portion. And I threw your name in and there's some people on the board that know your parents and you're going to get a call. And I was happy at, at St. Thomas. I actually wanted to be the headmaster. That was kind of the kind of the next evolutionary step for me, thought process, at least. I came down and interviewed. It was so funny. They they flew me down and they were like, oh, we'll get you a hotel. I said, no, I'll just stay at mom's dad's. I mean, we don't need a hotel. We'll get you a car. Dad will pick me up. It's a big deal. Don't worry about it. Mom will come. And I interviewed uh, and uh, took the job. And that was an enormous leap of faith to go from education 
And I mean, St. Thomas County, I had a staff of 17. I mean, this, this we were raising four to seven million a year outside of the $40 million campaign. This was legit big time fundraising. I don't think people generically think about a high school in that way, but that's what we were doing. This to go to healthcare was an academic medical center. I was so far over my head at 36 or seven. Absolutely. I don't know why they chose, but I had another mentor and another angel and Glenn Fosdick that gave me that opportunity to get to where I'm kind of at now. It, what was his role in that? CEO. Yeah. Uh, in, my, in my book, I tell the story because it's absolutely true. He, I asked him in the interview during the day, why, why are you talking to me? I mean, you got to be kidding me. I'm 36, 37 years old. I certainly understand philanthropy. I raise a lot of money. I think I'm an okay leader. But this is academic medicine. And I'm this guy from this secondary, really cool, but secondary educational institution in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he's looked at me and he says, I'm talking to two other people. They're in their 50s, late 50s. And frankly, this is the only area in the hospital that I haven't made major changes. And I don't know what to do and how to do it. And I'm looking for someone to shake it up. I said, okay. And at dinner that night, the CFO looked weird, the nice steakhouse in Omaha and wives and, and, and husbands of the senior team are there and my wife and I, and the CFO looks across the table and looks at Mary Lynn and says, who's 29, 30, looks across the table and says, well, why should we hire Randall? It's absolutely true story. And unprepared, unrehearsed, she looked at me. She looked at them. She looked at me. She looked at them. And she put her fork down and said, Randall's a force of nature. If you're not serious about this, don't waste our time. Picked up the fork and kept eating. And there was like a nervous laughter amongst a lot of people at the table. And my first reaction was to glance at my wife. And then I turned to my right and Glenn and his wife were at the far end of the table. And Glenn had a smile on his face from ear to ear. And I look, I, I walked out with my wife after dinner and I said, I'm going to get the job. Do you want to come? She goes, how do you know that? I said, first of all, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. That's still true today. But it was Glenn's reaction. And that was a big move because I didn't know anything about healthcare. I mean, I spent a year with a dictionary in my pocket of acronyms from OSHUs to NICUs to PICUs to <laughs> everything else we deal with daily. And I had to really figure it out as I went. But Glenn, Glenn gave me a wonderful opportunity. And that's how I got back to Omaha and into healthcare. And how much of that attraction was going back home and how much was a new challenge? Because as you say, you were doing great where you were. I think it twofold. Mom and dad had had a, they were still young. I mean, this is uh, what I got to think about this. Uh, 17, 18 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, they were still young, but they had had a health issue. And I felt a call in to come home. Number two, I'm an Omaha kid. I'm fifth generation Nebraskan. So this is home. Three, uh, that same hospital in its previous iteration uh, on Thanksgiving day of, I got to think about it, maybe 78 or 79, did open heart surgery on my grandfather for whom I am named. And so there were all, my mom's first job part-time was in the earlier iteration of this hospital. There were a lot of people on the board knew my parents incredibly well. There was a lot of pull, but there was also kind of that next step. Could I do this? The, to go from secondary education to healthcare, it's not that one's better or worse, but healthcare is more complicated. It just is. And it doesn't mean it's not more important or it's, it's, it, it has more value. It just, because of the, of the political nature, its size and scope, the relationship with physicians, you know, how it engages different aspects of a community and, and, and the importance it plays in the community. There was a question in my mind, could I do this? Well, there's only one way to figure that out. You gotta go try. So I took a leap of faith. Now, see this, if is I could almost, do it. this is more than 15 years later now, as you said, 17, 18 years ago that that started. And you've made a substantial commitment to not just working in these kinds of institutions, working with them as clients of yours, but also just being steeped in making sure that healthcare philanthropy works. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you've described yourself as kind of a, a teacher or an educator, and you have another degree uh, in, in that field. Um, but what about, what about uh, the 
field of healthcare philanthropy is so motivational to you? What is so important about it? Why is it that we need to focus more on it? And maybe, you know, what is the, the thing that you're trying to achieve through it? I wouldn't have said this 15 years ago because I didn't quite understand it, but maybe the time has given me a good view, a bad view, a correct view, an incorrect view. But I believe that communities cannot survive unless they have three aspects and you can't miss any of them. You have to have infrastructure. Infrastructure is from, from trash to fire and, and police to roads it just if you do if you start taking away elements of infrastructure community just doesn't work the second is education and i'm not saying every school every community i'm talking a large metropolitan area or a small rural community cannot survive without education but they don't need a four-year land-grant institution it can be great community college it could be great secondary education because education is about the next generation and hope the third is healthcare. If you don't have healthcare, you can't attract business. You can't attract employees. And if you look at the hollowing out, and I talk a lot about this in my book, the hollowing out of these smaller communities as these hospitals are leaving, they are the largest employer. People just just uh, from a demographic perspective, we're growing older. People with older usually have a little bit more flexibility in terms of monetary means. They will move from small communities when they realize they need health care to go to the communities that they look at. My father-in-law moved up here from Louisiana. My wife's a, a native Louisiana. And one of the things we looked at was where are the places that have good hospitals? Because he's not an Omaha. He's not a city person. He likes more of a rural area. So we kind of drew a circle an hour away from Omaha so we could have access to him. He could have access to the grandkids, get back and forth easily. We settled in a community for him because part they had infrastructure, they had education, and they had healthcare. And you ask why I'm involved with healthcare, because I see such a chasm in what's coming in the finances of healthcare. I saw it 10 years ago. It was in its early stages. We ignored it. And then the pandemic happened. And now we've got this crisis. And it's not that I saw the crisis coming, but the disconnect between strategy, the CEO and philanthropy is so dramatic. And that's why I wrote my book. That's what I write articles about. That's what I spend more and more of my time on consulting about. Not about the fact that you should be able to raise money. I can teach you that. I teach all, all kinds of gift officers. But if you're not aligned in healthcare, your hospital will suffer. You will close departments. You will stop having doctors come to your area and eventually your hospitals will close. And that's why we're seeing the closures that we do because communities did not turn into or hospitals did not turn into the community and say, we need a more robust partnership where philanthropy is a part of this to ensure we have the kind of hospital, the kind of healthcare this community needs. And I think so that's going to be a problem. Why, why is that? And, and how can we resolve it? Well, if you think about it, and I wrote, I wrote the book, Jay, and I, I, I had talked to publishers and they, well, I will charge $40, $50. I'm like, no, 10 bucks, 12 bucks, because it has to be accessible. The reason why is to your question, if you're a CEO of a hospital, and I, I did this in a recent article with AHP, kind of drew the parallel between universities and, and uh, uh, healthcare. If you're a CEO of healthcare, you literally do not integrate with philanthropy in any way, shape, or form. Educationally, it's not taught. You become some director somewhere, and then you're kind of into this vice, assistant vice president. You kind of move, and all of a sudden, you become a senior executive. And for the first time, most likely, unless somebody showed up and said, you have to go spend this money, you've never been engaged with philanthropy, and you're still not. Then you get promoted to be the CEO, and now you have somebody reporting to you, walks in the door and says, I need these things. And there's no background for them. A few come to it naturally. But the comparison to the universities is the most important because 25 years ago, universities pivoted because they started running out of money. And when you hire a university president today in a public school, you don't hire the chemistry professor. You hire the strategist, the fundraiser, communicator, someone who can build relationships. We are 10 years away from healthcare demanding the same. And so the chasm is all this experience. And this goes back to what we were asking about with Glenn Fosdick. 
Glenn Fosdick told me he was vulnerable enough. And that's, I give him credit for at least the title of the book to say, I don't know what I don't know. Teach me. And he looked at a 35 year old, 36 year old neophyte. Teach me what I need to do. Teach me what I need to know. That takes unbelievable self-strength and self-actualization to know. I don't know what I don't know, and I'm going to admit to it, and I'm going to let someone else guide me as to where we need to go. The problem is, is that I don't think most CEOs are in that position. That's the problem. And it's a chasm that I'm scared will continue to grow if we don't see massive change. And this is a lot of vulnerability and a lot of education. We don't need them 100% of the time, but we on healthcare, we get one, two, three percent of the CEO's time. And yet we probably need 20 to 30% in their studies about university presidents, how much time they spend on philanthropy. There's a reason they raise seven times more money because their CEO is doing this every day. That's my biggest concern long-term for healthcare and particularly for communities that have only one hospital system or one hospital that if they don't turn outward to partner in the right way with the community, they'll just keep trying to cut their way out of this, the financial problems, and it won't work. You know, as you talked about earlier, this kind of concept of instant gratification in a lot of ways, I wonder if part of that is this myopia, right? We look at what's right in front of us, the microscope rather than the telescope. And the, put it. the, the way you talked about the situation of healthcare sounds in some ways to me like people have been looking at what's right in front of them because they have to, they have to provide the care right now. But without looking at that chasm that you just described, the one that evil Knievel has to jump, like the Snake River Canyon. I don't know how, how they can make that. So is one of the things that you're working with trying to help them to, to see beyond the present? I think it's not only see beyond the present, but number one, look internally to realize there's something. I've learned this about CEOs, particularly in healthcare. I think universities, it's just a little similarity, but I think faculty are a little different than they are most of our employees in hospitals is there's an omnipotence that's required to be a CEO. They're supposed to know everything. And in a complicated world where the world in a moment changes for most people, when they have a healthcare episode or a family member does, you look to these people as being all powerful, whether it's the physician, the CEO, the executive suite, they know all the answers. And as you're well aware, we lost dad this year and, and, and he put up a heroic fight with leukemia, but I could see it coming. And my mom kept saying, why can't they fix this? And I'm like, mom, these people are not all seeing, all knowing, all being they're humans. So yes, it's, it's the myopic. I think the other thing is, is, and I, I, I'll give up my former mentor, my baby still mentor in Glenn Fosdick. He read the book, read it in three hours. And he called me immediately and he says, everything you said about me in there is true. I said, well, good. I didn't want to lie. And he said, but I took something away to your point. He says, I gave too much power to the CFO, didn't I? I said, yes, you did. I said, you picked that up. He goes, I did. And that goes back to the immediacy. Financial numbers are right in front of them all the time. The benchmarks of quality scores, patient satisfaction scores, sentinel events are in front of them in dashboards all of the time. But yet, if you go to a CEO and say, do you have a dashboard for philanthropy? Do you know one? Do you know of one that exists? Do you know you can benchmark that against other hospitals? 99% of the time is, well, no. Part of that's our fault as chief development philanthropy officers for not pressing. I didn't walk into a meeting without that dashboard which by the way, was never really included in any of the other dashboards that were presented by the organization. But I was always slipping in front of all the other executives saying, we're just as accountable as you all are. They don't know all of these things. And so that begin, these things are right in front of them. So yes, they look at their desk and here's a financial income statements, balance sheet, a cash flow statement, cash on hand. And where do they naturally turn when those numbers become bad to the person who produced them, the CFO? And what I keep saying is we are so much more cost efficient, cost effective, can get the money more quickly, can build alliances with the community. If we could just get the head of philanthropy 
not the chief development officer, the head of philanthropy, the CEO, to spend more time in the community figuring out how we can partner in the right way. That's the reason why this all happens. You just mentioned your dad, and I I want to make sure that I ask about sure. uh, this particular journey. Uh, he and your mom have been so important to you, and um, all of our parents are, but you talk about them a lot and as a model for you too. I'm curious if you talked much about this this world that you're in and the work that you do and what you're trying to do with your father and what he's what he how he reacted, how he understood it and and how his his responses to you fed back into your uh, your your own work. That's what you might great, say about it now. That's a great question. I I it's been a hard six months. I, I am I'm my father's son. Uh, and I, I would articulate in the same way. I'm my mother's son too. Um, I never had to worry about whether or not or wonder whether or not my, my father in this case, but my mother too was proud of me. They told me. Um, I, I told you, I've told the story a couple of times. Uh, I was at a recent deal where I, I didn't even know what event I was going at. My Australian clients here in the United States, we go into this event and I'm walking in the door with Rupert Murdoch. I mean, just because my Uber pulled up at the same time, his fleet of SUV, you know, Suburbans pulled up. And so I go into this event and there's Michael Bloomberg and all these famous people. We go through the event and my client, I'm still looking at my client going, what are we doing here in New York? What, 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 if, I didn't get a whole lot of information. It's a leap of faith for me to go. And at the end they say, and now for our musical uh, uh, entertainment, the beach boys. And it's not, the like the imitation this is the beach boys minus brian and i called my mom and and dad loved the beach boys dad loved them and i called mom and 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 i said i want you to know you dad is here with me i i, I take dad with me everywhere i go it doesn't mean i don't miss him i talk to him two or three times a day we talk about the craziest things but I take dad with me because that's kind of who I am. And I never had to worry about that. He was proud of me. And by the way, just as important, my sisters, he was just as proud of them for different reasons. And so that goes back to where we started the cleavers. I have lived an uh, idyllic life and don't know if I deserve it. No, I don't probably, but dad comes with me everywhere I go. And I've told mom that, and, and after 55 years of marriage, it's different for mom, obviously, than it is for me. But I miss him. But everything I do, he's a part of. He's kind of like that angel, as I talked about earlier, not able to protect me, but always to be sitting on my shoulder, enjoying the journey, because he's a big part. Mom's the exact same way, a big part of anything that I do successfully, because it's life's short and you, you got to realize the people that helped you get there, because if you don't, it's not a very fulfilling life. Well, that's it for this episode of the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast. Thanks very much to our sponsor, DonorSearch, the world leader in fundraising intelligence, and of course, our producer, Jack Frost. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the DonorSearch YouTube channel, or wherever you like to listen. And consider giving us a like and a positive review so others can find us too. Check out our live webinars and webcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and come back next Friday for our next interview with another leader in the world of social good. Until then, this is Jay Frost. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.